evening, everybody. My name is Carrie Lambert, and I am uh, from the Business Talk Cafe, but we are hosting this webinar and uh, with Michelle Sterling, and she's going to be talking about unmarked or mass graves. And uh, we also have another host here. It's uh, Chris Scott from the Whistle Stop Cafe. Chris, how are you well, doing? Well, good evening, everybody. I'm doing great. How are you, Carrie? Not bad, not bad. We uh, we were told to uh, to come on uh, and uh, and possibly host this. And uh, so what we're doing is we're waiting for Michelle to come on. So in the meantime, what do you want to talk about, Chris? Anything? AP? Oh boy, do I ever have stuff to talk tell about? Us, where, tell us. Tell us. Where should I start? <laughs> I'm going to keep it relevant to the conversation we're uh, we're excited to have tonight. So I want to point out something to everybody. So the Alberta Prosperity Project uh, is an educational society, and their goal is to educate Albertans as to the necessity of the benefits, the merits of an, of an independent Alberta. Yes. Or, at the very least, a successful referendum on independence that could be used as leverage, as the only leverage we can use when uh, negotiating with the federal government to improve our position within confederation so the alberta prosperity project um you know the, the the old saying what's in a name really applies here this is about creating a prosperous alberta and one of the ways you do that one of the ways you achieve prosperity is by having discussions and conversations and talking about things and finding some truths so in addition to you know this whole idea of having this referendum on independence in alberta and improving our position Alberta Prosperity Project also recognizes that there's a lot of topics out there that have to be discussed. I mean, we've talked about some, uh, you know, um, World Economic Forum involvement in Alberta policy and politics. We've yeah. talked about some uh, climate change arguments with uh, uh, Alex Epstein, who has a very sound argument as to why we should be using more fossil fuels, not less. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is that there, the Alberta Prosperity Project is much, much more than just a group dedicated to getting a referendum on the table. They actually want to make things better. And this is one of the ways that they want to do that is by uh, bringing these folks on who are way smarter than Carrie and I, specifically smarter than Carrie, and, and getting this information out there. What a jerk. Because, yeah, I am. I am. Because... In the last in the last twenty years, Carrie, you can attest to this. How many times have you seen some, um, you know, propaganda that's funded with our tax dollars, that's shoved down our throats, and it, and the idea behind it is to make us accept really really bad policy? Like you, you see this you know, all you, the time. You said in the last twenty years. So really, you know, twenty years ago, I was a youngster. I'm still a youngster, but I was a youngster. He wasn't. <laughs> And I really didn't pay much attention. And, you know, and I've said this numerous times that that's probably the reason why we're back in this sort of a situation where we're looking at options. We're looking at ways to uh, to get out of this kerfuffle that we're in as not only uh, uh, a province or uh, uh, even cities, uh, but essentially where the world is going and what we're looking at right now. Um, and... And so really in the last few years, I've been rather awake, I guess, at looking at some of the propaganda that's been sent out to us, paper, um, uh, billboards, um, especially when it came down to uh, uh, things like, uh, uh, like COVID was a per perfect example for that. When we were told that they were spending $15 million on advertising 
And I know from a marketing background how much $15 million goes. And I cannot believe how many millions and millions and millions of dollars that have been funded from the federal government specifically for that action. And, uh, and we know that CBC gets $600 million, or basically the media, I guess, uh, gets $600 million a year. And they just asked for another $40 million and all that, and, uh, which is utter garbage, right? They're yeah, the total contribution, taxpayer contribution, and I'm sure uh, somebody can put this up in the chat if I'm incorrect. It's something to the tune of $1.3 billion, Gary. Wow. Wow. That is... That, that, that could heavily influence a lot of things. Oh, absolutely. It could change the course of the path of the country. Yeah. So I, was, I was just in uh, Winnipeg working and I uh, happened to stay at my parents. And, I, you know, what do they watch? Well, they watch CBC, they watch CTV, and they watch Global. And I cannot believe the propaganda that they end up getting from that. And topic on discussion that's happening up tonight with uh, the, the unmarked or mass graves, Indigenous people, as well as climate change. And I cannot believe how much that they are really using our tax dollars to talk about things like climate change. So my first realization, or at least one of the ones that I remember from a kid, um, that government policy could be really bad, actually yeah. is right on, on point with tonight's conversation. Uh, I grew up in Kamloops, and um, we, you know, there's a very, very robust and uh, like large indigenous population in Kamloops, and like they, they're really great. They're about celebrating their history and and promoting um, their their culture. So yeah. as a kid, I was exposed to a lot of this, and it brought up a lot of questions because I remember being really, really young. I was still in elementary school, and I found out about residential schools. Mm -hmm. And at first, I thought, oh, you know, this is great. It's a like a summer camp. Because yeah. that at, at that point in my life, that's what I thought about something like that was, oh, it's great. It's like a summer camp. You get to go and have fun. And then I found out, or I was told kind of what the truth about that was. And it, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that was something that society and government wanted to happen. Like they, they, yeah. they actually said, we're going to do this and it's a good idea. Yeah. And it, I never understood why governments would do things like that. So, you know, at one point there was a conversation or conversations happening about how to deal with Canada's indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. What are, is the government going to do with them? And eventually out comes these policies that allowed the RCMP to go into people's homes and yeah. take their children away because the yeah. government knew better than the parents yeah. in British, British Columbia. Uh, they made it illegal to have uh, potlucks and, and I don't mean a potluck like what we consider a potluck, but it was a, it was based kind of the same thing where, where they were, you know, sharing and giving and community stuff, right? It yeah. was illegal. And the RCMP would actually go into indigenous uh, uh, communities and they would arrest people for participating in their culture. Uh, wow. Kids and, and people were, they were beaten for speaking their language. And this was all policy that at one time was agreed on that it was up to the benefit of society. And, we're so, and we're so much smarter now, aren't we? Yeah, we're, I don't think human beings really ever learn anything. No. And I, while the, the sins of our past are to us today, they seem much worse than the sins of the day. How are people going to think 
about us 30 years ago or society as a whole and the direction we took and the things we did to each other yeah. because it was government policy right yeah. and and please don't carry you know i'm not trying to um um say that this is the same thing as what has happened in the past yeah. but yeah. things can go south very very fast if conversations aren't had people yeah. don't question authority yeah. and and bother to hold people accountable so yeah. that's what we're trying to do and i'm hoping we're able to do it tonight yeah uh michelle will be able to come on yeah yeah i, I think we're having technical difficulties yeah. i think that always happens yeah yeah so the the you know we were just talking about uh indigenous and so um the last little while i've been looking into um undrip which is a big topic and i'm not sure if anybody knows what undrip is and whether or not we'll be talking about this uh in a later webinar uh app does these webinars every wednesday i believe at uh, seven o'clock mountain standard time but what i wanted to touch on is just uh what the undrip is and it's the united nations declaration of the rights of the indigenous and um if if you really look into it it well, actually, on top level, it sounds like it's a great idea. You know, they'll they'll uh, support the indigenous. They'll uh, give them land. But if you really look into it, it's really another way of uh, the UN can actually give land to the indigenous, have them take it over, set up the indigenous to fail, and then when they fail in their what they're supposed to be doing the UN will come in and pick up all the land and then redistribute it as they will. Do you know what they're giving them? They're not, you know what they're actually giving them? What's that? Blankets. Blankets. That's it. Yeah. And, and they should, uh, that's, that's what they're getting in terms of land. At one point, because all of this stuff is so serious. It is at one point in our, you know, there's a stain on our history. Yeah. And at one point, um, the indigenous people in, in North America, uh, they were tricked. Yeah. The Europeans said, Hey, we're going to give you all these gifts. We're going to give you these blankets. Yeah. And the indigenous folks, they, they took that at face value and thought, this is great. We're getting something that's great for us. But those blankets were contaminated on purpose with smallpox. Wow. Like that, that, that literally happened. That was a thing. Yeah. And Again, I'm not saying this is the same thing, but sometimes these things that that are presented as gifts and benefits to people, there's a very, very nefarious side to it. And it was never intended to be a gift at all. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of times stuff like this, especially with with UNDRIP, um, uh, it's my opinion that it's just a tool to achieve yeah. the goal of, uh, you know, what the UN wants to do. That's and right. that is have no, no individuals or individual countries own land it's all owned by uh the the globe that's right yeah maybe so, i'm wrong you know i just i'm, I'm just a yeah. i'm just a cook so we're still waiting for michelle and uh like we said we we do these app webinars on wednesdays and uh but likewise we also do um app events we do chapter events we do uh large events um I, I'd advise people if you have not signed up for uh, the Alberta Prosperity Project, please do so. Um, and um, I know the memberships are, I think they're $20. And, um, and it, it's, you know, 
better than better than a couple of cups cups of coffee. I think you get better uh, <laughs> better. Terry, uh, oh, why why would I why would I pay twenty dollars to be be a member of the Alberta Prosperity Project? Why instead of instead of buying twenty dollars twenty dollars in coffee? Yeah, why would I do that? What's the, what's in it for me? Well, the benefit is that this money is actually used to to fund education programs like this, uh, webinars as well as uh, as other events. And and speaking of which, we actually have an event going on tomorrow night in Calgary, in which APP is sponsoring uh, a movie uh, put through by uh, uh, Kian. Uh, help me out here. Is Simone. it Kian Simone from Rebel News? And uh, he made this documentary called Ungovernable. And it talks about the independence movement in Alberta and where it's actually gone since the 1970s, I believe. And uh, there are some limited tickets uh, available and it's at the Canyon Meadows Theater tomorrow night. I believe it's at seven o'clock and um, tickets are $10. And uh, are you going down there, Chris? Uh, I'm possibly uh, maybe yes yep. okay yeah i'll go i'll go um <laughs> the reason i'm gonna go i've seen this i've seen this film a couple times yeah now if you're sitting there at home and you're you're thinking you know what this is ridiculous why would you know why would we be talking about dividing the country why would we be talking about destroying the country well if you if you want to understand why there is a independence movement in alberta um, and why there has been since the, since the 1970s when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was in power here, yeah. uh, watch the movie. It explains a lot and it lays Absolutely. it out very plainly um, what is going on in Alberta. I mean, I don't, it, it's not perfect in my opinion and some of the ways things are portrayed and some of the opinions are different than ones I hold, but at the, you know, at, at, at face value, it, it does a really good job of explaining some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's uh, and especially if you if you don't know who the original players were in terms of uh, well, who did they talk about originally? They 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 bring in uh, Peter Lougheed, they bring in um, uh, Ralph Klein. They 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 talk about everything right from the seven. Actually, they even go back to 1905. Uh, and in terms of what kind of a deal we ended up getting, uh, a very raw deal to basically you know what's the expression to. Uh, will will to use the resources the of the west yes to to uh build up the the factories in the east and right. and and increase their prosperity that's right yeah and that's basically what this movie shows so if you if you have some time coming out tomorrow uh i will be there i'm actually emceeing the the night so come on down say hello and uh we'll watch a movie together we'll eat some popcorn oh. together <laughs> Cam actually reminded me I'm uh, I'm supposed to be doing the closing at the end of the oh, night tomorrow, so I guess I have to go. So yes, oh, I will be there. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> Good thing we did this webinar. Otherwise, we just never know what we're doing. <laughs> so that's you know this is a really good uh, this is a really good segue into this this webinar. Should it should it ever start? Yes. Um, one of the reasons why I believe Alberta should be at the very very least autonomous. And at in the best case, probably independent of Canada. Um, a lot of the policies that we're seeing pushed on us from the federal government, these are policies that the West can never stand up against. I yeah. mean, it doesn't matter. You remember, Kerry, when uh, Justin Trudeau was first elected, what the electoral map looked like? The entire 
of Western was Canada was all blue. blue. Yeah. Everything. Everybody was blue. We're all voted conservative, not one liberal seat, and yet we're subject to Justin Trudeau and his ridiculous bungling of the of yeah. the prime minister position for now. I don't know. I don't even know how many years. I can't remember. But we don't. We we can't stop it. And when bad policies like this come in from the federal government, and you know Alberta is sitting there like, what do you mean? You're. What do you mean we can't move our resources? What do you mean we? Why are you vilifying our agriculture and our ranching? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's what's going on here? We're no, we're not doing this. We're not going down that path. And the federal government says, yes, we are. While they follow Justin Trudeau, you know, playing his pipe and leading Canadians off the edge of a cliff. We can't stop it yeah. in Confederation. Yeah. So at some point, you know, you have to you have to stop and ask yourself, what what should we be fighting for? Should we be fighting for a flag, or should we be fighting for uh, our friends and our neighbors and our and our future prosperity? Right. right. Yeah. And yeah. Because I hear I hear that all the time about whether or not uh, you know you guys you guys don't like Canada. As a matter of fact, I love Canada. I love Canadians. It's the federal government that I could do without. If there was some way, I don't even know how it would work that we could somehow make it all fit, then that would be great. But we've tried this many many times. Hello, yes. Michelle. There Hello. She oh, she's oh. muted. <laughs> I think she's muted. Can you hear us? We can. We can't hear you. <laughs> uh, yes, there we are. I'm very, very sorry for all the technical. Oh, difficulties. You're quite not a problem. Not a problem. That happens. You should see Carrie trying to drive in Calgary. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm. I'm just full of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really sorry. Anyhow. He's actually full of my steaks, <laughs> <laughs> and they're probably really delicious. Oh, they're amazing. They are, yes. mm -hmm. Whistle Stop Cafe steaks. There you go. Alberta beef. So. Well, yeah. welcome, uh, Michelle. It's nice to see you again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on again. And uh, again, I apologize for my technical difficulties, but uh, I'm you'll here. Just have to, you'll have to speak faster now. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. I'll speed speaking course. Oh, it's all good. Um, so yes. uh, tonight's webinar is about. I believe the title is Unmarked or Mass Graves. And when I heard this title, uh, when when they asked me to co-host this webinar, I immediately thought, oh boy, here's a controversial and touchy subject, right? Like this has been hot news. Well, sorry, it was hot news when it was released uh, to distract people from what else was going on, in my opinion. It hasn't been much in the news lately because I don't know why. I mean, it seems like a very, very serious thing. Uh, there's a lot of uh, really serious implications to it. And yet we haven't heard much about it. And, uh, and I'm kind of wondering why. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, maybe, maybe it will shed some light on that for me. Um, sure. Uh, well, um, first of all, you know, there was sort of a media lock-in of the narrative that mass graves, uh, you know, suggesting a literal genocide had happened in Canada. And this was the repeated narrative in all the Canadian press and also the foreign press. Um, and uh, only recently has uh, Terry Glavin of the National Post written a very comprehensive 
uh, review of the facts. And I must say that Terry is much closer to the First Nations communities in Canada than I am. He's done a lot of work with a number of First Nations communities. So you can look at his work. And also he has a substack. Another former professor named Jaime Rubenstein has as running a substack on the similar theme. Um, that's more recent, but he's put out a number of articles. The Dorchester Review, um, I think it was kind of in the spring, they did uh, an article by an, uh, a well-known historian stating that um, no graves had been discovered. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, this uh, and the um, True North News, also interviewed Brian Giesbach, who was a former judge, and uh, they had an expert panel that disputed the narrative. But really, you know, compared to the mass media narrative, very small items. And so, you know, I got into it because I'd done a number of historical documentaries, and I met with a number of pioneers. I I met with the last living RCMP officer, Northwest Mounted Police Officer, who first trek west. So, um, you know, I just knew that it was wildly exaggerated. And, and I guess the thing that is very important for us as Albertans and as Canadians is that this is really driving a wedge between groups within society. It's creating... Um, hatred and resentment between groups mm -hmm. and some of that might still exist with the facts that I hope to show you tonight um, but I don't think it would be at the level of outrage okay. you know I, I there are many people who do have very real and painful horrible experiences from residential schools but the facts of the context of history also need to frame those experiences for all of us so that we understand what life was like back then. You know, it wasn't a cakewalk. There wasn't a, a lot of people suffered from many things and we'll find out about some of them. And I'm sure even right now with, you know, we're talk, we're zooming, we're, we're talking this way back then, the only way you got your news was by maybe a weekly newspaper, maybe a daily newspaper, if you were in a bigger center. So people didn't know what was going on until they actually got the news. Right. Mm -hmm. Or by letter, you know, and letter exactly. yeah. might take quite a while to get there. Yeah. It wouldn't necessarily be that comprehensive. You know, paper was also expensive. Postage stamps were expensive. Yes. People lived on very limited budgets. That's so, right. um, you know, some of the things that we've, um, I think, as, as I discuss, uh, you know, one of the main, well, actually, I guess there's three main diseases that hit the Aboriginal communities in North America. The first one was smallpox, yeah. which uh, really wiped out a lot of Aboriginal people in North America because they had no prior contact to it. Yeah. Um, uh, next was tuberculosis. Yeah. And, um, you know, TB was almost uh, mystical at the time because uh, people thought it was hereditary, mm -hmm. even though, you know, the doctors knew that it was spread by germs. Uh, some people thought it was hereditary. So sometimes people buried their own family members without um, a marker. 
because they didn't want their family marked by the thought that they too might be carrying TB. That's true. That is true. Yes. And, um, and then the next thing was Spanish flu. And Spanish flu was really a, a rapid and horrible killer on a vast scale and almost immediate. So there are probably, I mean, I, there are mass graves. I'm not going to say po probably there are mass graves from times when uh, Spanish flu swept through residential schools or communities and people just simply could not keep up with burying the bodies, um, especially in winter. Wait, wait a minute. What I've the narrative that's been spun and presented on uh, mass to Canada is that the people that were running the residential schools were so bad, and they were so abusive to the people in these schools that they just would would you know beat them to death and throw them outside, and right. and, and bury them in you know and not say anything about it. That's that's kind of um, the narrative that that people are pushing, and and because of it. All of the sudden, because I'm a I'm a white Christian of European descent, um, I'm responsible for a for a genocide of an entire people. Well, I'm sure that there were instances of people being very badly beaten. I can tell you from my own experience. My father went to a British boarding school, and now, admittedly, um, he was learning about his own heritage uh, at that school. But because he was left-handed, and in that time, left-handed people were seen to be as being possessed by the devil, literally. His hands were beaten, caned black and blue whenever he tried to write with his left hand. His hand was tied behind his back. He was, a dunce cap was put on. He was made to stand in the corner. And, of course, all the other kids would, you know, beat up on him as well uh, because he was obviously... Um, you know, <laughs> uh, from the devil, right? So uh, what I'm saying here is that I know that horrible things happened at these kinds of schools. And you can read about British boarding schools in Britain, and uh, people have died in these circumstances, in, you know, kind of like a hazing circumstance that often happens with freshmen and in uh, university. But, but of course, this would be a younger group in a in a boarding school context it you know it can without proper supervision it can generate that kind of lord of the flies environment and um, people are victimized sometimes by um, each other and sometimes by the superiors mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll i'll show other examples of that as well in my presentation well, let's, let's jump into the presentation because I know uh, there, there's, you know, <laughs> just talking here, I've got three or four questions that I could ask, but I'm pretty sure you'll be covering them in the presentation. So. Okay. Well, you may come up with others as we go along. So if you do, just note them down and okay. remember them, and I'd be happy to answer what I can or refer, refer you to other sources. That's awesome. Okay. So now I need to share my screen, right? Okay, let's see. Host has disabled participant screen sharing. <laughs> well, we gotta get uh, gotta get that uh, host to to fix that. Walter, <laughs> I feel bad for even saying that. <laughs> Since Walter helped me in other ways. Again, that's all right. We'll figure it out. 
he looks like he's sweating. <laughs> so where where did you come up with uh, a lot of this uh, a lot of this research? Well, I did uh, quite a bit of it myself. No. Some of it, um, I wrote 41 half-hour historical documentaries for CFCN back wow. in the 1980s. Wow. Yeah. I spent about a decade in the Glenbow Museum. Uh, Dr. Hugh Dempsey was my research supervisor. Yeah. And uh, in those documentaries, we drove around the province, mostly southern Alberta, but I probably interviewed about 240, 250 uh, we tried to do a combination for each show of a pioneer, yeah. a local historian who might have some, you know, cute little anecdote, mm -hmm. and uh, a professional historian, and maybe a relative. So we tried to get different perspectives on a particular topic um, uh, about the foundations of Southern Alberta. Yeah. So, um, no, what we what we didn't do is uh, we didn't actually introduce you. And hearing you say these things you've done kind of brings up the question, why did you decide to do this kind of things? What's your background and and where like where did this all come from? Where did this desire to look for these truths come from? Well, because I had talked with so many people um, in the, in Southern Alberta in, and uh, about Southern Alberta history, I, I just felt it was wrong that people didn't know. Uh, you know, the broader picture. And I also had written a six-hour historical do um, uh, drama miniseries. It didn't get produced, but I, I worked on that with Claude Fournier and Marie-Josée Raymond, who are two Quebec filmmakers who were quite well known in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, one of their films was uh, nominated for an Oscar. Mm -hmm. I think that was uh, Bonheur d'Occasion, the tin flute. Um, and they've won many film awards in Canada, um, but um, they I met them at the Banff Film Festival one year, and um, they uh, and Claude said, you know, it's so beautiful here in the mountains. We should do the story of Canada, how the Mounties came west, and you know what happened. And and anyway, in the process of researching in the Glenbow and talking with uh, Dr. Emcee. He said, well, there's a very interesting little book called uh, Winter at Fort McLeod. And it was one that he had edited, but it was actually the diary of Dr. R.B. Nevitt, who was a medical doctor who went with the March West in 1874. And he was also an amateur artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he wrote many great letters back home to his fiancée, and he also did a number of illustrations, very good ones, but you know, these are like, they're like the Snapchat of that time, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? They're like the Instagram of that time. And so uh, it was, he as a character and those illustrations and the fact that he was involved in almost all the important things like Treaty 7 and Sitting Bull coming over the border, you know, he made him kind of the perfect, um, theme character, if you like, for the miniseries. And also uh, because he was sending love letters home, right? <laughs> you know, it had this romantic element because that's a difficulty when you have a whole bunch of Mounties that march west and mm -hmm. here they yeah. are in the prairie. <laughs> you know, okay, what's, where's the human interest story? <laughs> you know, kind of disappears pretty fast. Yeah. Well, it looks like you're good to go for your uh, screen share now if you want to.
Okie doke. Well, let's try it and see what happens. Here we go. Okay, so I'm going to be reading bits and pieces from the piece that I wrote, um, which is posted on Medium, but um, I'll be doing a show and tell here. Uh, so away I go. So um, international and domestic media have had a field day covering the announcements of unmarked graves at residential schools. The news reports often quickly slip from unmarked to mass graves, dialing up the emotional angst as the latter phrase implies an intentional act of genocide over an act of negligence or a simple lack of maintenance of wooden crosses and markers that distinct, uh, disintegrated over time. And likewise, the graves announced in the press were discovered by the use of ground-penetrating radar, a technology that sees only anomalies below the surface, um, but it cannot see if there's a coffin. So I just want to get my PowerPoint rolling here. So this is an example of the New York Times. Horrible history, mass grave discovered indigenous children reported, um, mass grave of indigenous children reported in Canada. Well, you know, that wasn't quite true. Here's what ground penetrating radar looks like. You can't see particularly a grave. You can see that there's a disruption and there may be something there. There may be a coffin, there may be bones there, there may be rocks there, but until you dig it up, you don't know. So, um, you know, that also led people in the international community to think that we didn't care and had done nothing about it. But in fact, Canada has done a great deal of work for decades trying to document the testimony of former students of residential schools, including a detailed report about missing children and unmarked burials. But there's little record of this in the international media reports. In other words, the fact that there are unmarked graves and some missing children is not news to Canadians and has not been for decades. So graveyards were part of the design of such institutions in the time for practical and not nefarious reasons. So the uh, New York Times ran a touching story about residential school students in the US and uh, their sad experience, referring to recent reports about unmarked graves in Canada, but they curiously failed to mention that the US was running Indian Wars from 1622 to 1924, with a genocidal intention of wiping out the US Aboriginal people or subduing them by force. And by contrast, at the same time, the Canadians were making treaties with First Nations people and sending the Mounties, the RCMP or Northwest Mounted Police, west to stop the genocide of the Blackfoot Nation at the hands of US whiskey traders who had made an incursion into Southern Alberta. For the most part, Canadians had had peaceful trade relations with Aboriginal people since the early days of European contact. So 
um, 300 Mounties came west in the Great March. Now, just imagine that 300 Mounties um, at the end of the U.S. Civil War, the U.S. had a standing army of a million men. And the U.S. was spending $19 million a year on um, Indian wars. That's what they were called then. Um, and in Canada, our entire budget for the country, and, you know, Canada was mostly down east then, uh, mm -hmm. was $18 million. So you can see that it's kind of hilarious that Canada sent 300 Mounties west <laughs> to defend the Aboriginal people of Canada and our border <laughs> when there's a million man standing army in the U.S. Wow. Anyway, yeah. so here's an example of uh, a very twisted story that appeared in the media. Canada's Maclean's magazine of July 16th, 2021, enlisted Turkish-based journalist Adnan Arkan to write, coming to terms with a national shame. With the opening lines, the lessons from other countries that have had to confront mass graves are clear. Shining a light into our darkest corners is the only way forward. He then jumps the shark to compare the unmarked graves of Canada's residential schools with mass graves due to gruesome foreign intertribal wars, and then he goes on to compare them with the German Holocaust of Jews, referring to his German wife's experience. Somehow he never mentions that at the time that Canada was putting Aboriginal children in schools to teach them European skills like English, reading, writing, and math, and placing sick Aboriginal people in tuberculosis sanatoriums to save their lives, Germany had an ongoing public euthanasia program from 1900 to 1945, wherein sick people deemed defective or a problem for society were gassed in carbon monoxide chambers. Mm -hmm. These were ordinary German citizens, and this was public policy long before the actual Holocaust of Jews. And he also doesn't mention that many Germans have a deep fascination. Ah, okay, so this is the the um, eugenics period of uh, history in Germany, and it's really gruesome and brutal. <laughs> and here's the uh, let's dress up period of history. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't mention that many Germans have a deep fascination for North American Indians. And the, this is born entirely of fake stories about the noble brave Winnetou, which was written by Karl May. In fact, across Germany, there are Karl May dress-up clubs where grown men culturally appropriate traditional Aboriginal attire for their meetings, and many have teepees set up in their backyard. <laughs> Some Indian artifact museums in Germany hold human scalps of Aboriginal people and are reluctant to return them to Canadian Aboriginal tribes for proper burial. So, you know, it's curious that Maclean's chose a Turkish journalist with a German wife to write about Canadian um, Aboriginal history or white Aboriginal relationships when there are many great historians in Canada who yeah. could have enlightened 
the story with, you know, local flavor, shall we say. Um, and also in a recent uh, Toronto Sun op-ed of July 16th, 2021, Warren Kinsella takes residential school conspiracy thinking to a whole new and ridiculous level. In it, Kinsella seems to believe that people like myself, who are insisting on a fact-based discussion about residential school graveyards, are somehow equivalent to white supremacist neo-Nazis. This Kinsella conspiracy theory is taken to even greater heights as he questions at the end of his commentary, why would people be buried in unmarked graves unless there was something to hide? Well, clearly Kinsella has little grounding in history. So I have to say that it has taken me a while to gather the strength to write this article because I was aware that it's a painful topic for former students and descendants of residential schools, and it is a contentious issue in society. But the topic has become so distorted and lacks historical context that I feel I must speak up. Mm -hmm. I've written about the topic of reconciliation and historical context before, some years ago, and this commentary will expand on some of the issues of public health at the time. Um, former residential school students referred to in the media as survivors and descendants and the media and general public should be made aware of some of the background of these residential schools and the context of epidemics, disease, and public health care at the time. Mm -hmm. Residential schools had graveyards because many people, especially children, died of what are treatable causes today. Prior to the development of modern medicine, advanced public health, healthcare, and antibiotics, deaths of children were also high because the field of pediatric medicine did not develop until into the 1930s. So, as retired judge Brian Griesbach writes in an essay for the Frontier Center Public Policy, published July 27th, 2021. Um, let's see, I think I have that up here. Um, this is one of my earlier writings on it. He writes, there are unmarked graves all over the country, but countless untended and too often forgotten burial sites exist in Canada from coast to coast that contain the bodily remains of people from every ethnic group. In many cases, the wooden crosses that were routinely used to mark the graves of the poor have long since turned to dust, and the cemetery sites have returned to nature. This is particularly true on Indian reserves, where tending cemeteries is not a usual cultural practice for many and many residential schools burned down or were abandoned and their cemeteries were not maintained. It is also the responsibility of his individual families and not the government or church to provide markers and maintain graves. Not all Indigenous families participate in that admittedly colonialist Christian practice. Simply put, there are unmarked graves all over the country. So uh, just a little historical note here. Um, 
you may be aware of this. If you think back to the old cowboy and Indian westerns that a lot of us grew up on, um, you will remember that in the States, people were always uh, swaggering into the saloon, right? Having a few drinks and then going out and, you know, having a shootout on the street. Yeah. So historians typically compare the difference in culture and style of the development of Canada and the U.S. in two simple phrases, Canada, Mission, then Mountie Outpost, mm -hmm. USA, Saloon, then Boot Hill. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise that the Canadian government employed various religious orders to develop residential schools in order to keep their treaty obligations of providing education to Indigenous children or that the Mounties, the RCMP, would be called upon to enact enrollment. Both groups were present in the distant West and North, and both had existing relationships with Aboriginal people, and they often spoke their languages. Now, this Maclean's Magazine print edition article has a real black mark when it comes to Canada's military on the cover. Mm -hmm. And you can see that there are um, uh, a number of articles here. There are four articles, and all of them are quite emotional. And they're all about unmarked graves. And not one of them mentions the word tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. So until the 1960s, TB, tuberculosis, was the largest cause of death for all Canadians. Indeed, in a short video about the history of the Lung Association of Canada, it's emphasized that there was no public health care for anyone in Canada and that TB and polio epidemics were the drivers for creating one. And Chief Dan George has a brief cameo in that video lauding the Lung Association's work. Mm -hmm. So remember these Christmas seals? Mm -hmm. This yeah. is how they were raising money. See, so you can see here, free hospital for consumptives, because uh, TB was also known as consumption because it literally consumes the body from the inside. So, um, uh, so, so this is uh, a really important point. There was no public health care, uh, no funding for people who were quite ill on mm -hmm. a public level. And uh, so who actually was on the front treating TB? Well, it was Christian churches. So these two authors named Zilm and Warbinuk wrote a paper in 2006, and they were writing about British Columbia. Church organizations were the first to bring nurses to BC communities. The Sisters of St. Anne initiated nursing services in Victoria in 1858 during the BC Gold Rush. Other Gold Rush centers opened small hospitals, most of them community-supported rather than financed through churches. As the two West Coast colonies grew, the capitals at Victoria and New Westminster developed larger hospitals. After Florence Nightingale established her School of Nursing in 1860, many Canadian hospitals, including those on the West Coast, opened schools based on this model. Some graduates then established small, private hospitals in their homes, often specializing in the care of consumptives, people with pulmonary TB. Unfortunately, few archival records exist of these entrepreneurial nurses. In Vancouver, 
the Anglican Church founded a hospital under Sister Frances Redmond in Vancouver in 1887, and the Canadian Pacific Railway, or CPR, established a small tent hospital in 1886 when the city was de designated the terminus of the railway. So, um, again, you see you had these uh, nuns and priests who had a dedication to humanity through their vows to God, to Christ, and they, they felt it was their duty to heal the sick, to, to be, as Jesus said, you know, bring me, um, you know, to be a healer, to go to the community, to be with the people who sort of were the least of, of society and, and uplift them as they could. Anyway, so. So one of the questions, I guess, here, I might as well stop. So sure. if, if they were talking about, um, you know, the, the, the people in the church were helping the people that were sick, and there was only so much that they could do back then for them, and the people ended up dying, would they have been buried right there at the church? Would yep. they have been, so would they have had any marked graves then? Oh, well, sometimes there might be like a small wooden marker. Um, you know, if around, they might have made a like a they might have made a wooden or a um, you know a carved granite stone okay. headstone for them. But usually in those days, you know, people didn't have a lot of time or money, especially yeah. not in small communities or in remote locations. Yeah. So uh, I, I know how fast wood deteriorates. Even in my backyard, I put up a stick there for whatever reason, just marking out. Uh, uh you know what kind of a tree it is and like that's disintegrated after maybe four or five years so i can well imagine a hundred years later you wouldn't have any any uh evidence that there was even anything there yeah i think that the uh records do show that there's you know grave markings and they can assign okay. names pretty much to to okay. many of them but you know the fact is that if you go there you can't see anything you yeah. know it feels very much like they're not being honored at all because where is it you know yeah but um well i'll talk a bit more about that as we go on yeah. so you know for those not familiar with canadian history many of the early christian missionaries and the early mounties like colonel mcleod who the blackfoot people named which means bull's head mastered local aboriginal languages they even created written alphabets called syllabics and dictionaries hmm. often translating biblical passages or school texts the early missionaries in the canadian west like reverend george mcdougall also took in orphaned aboriginal people children a descendant of reverend mcdougall told me that his ancestor had adopted 17 blackfoot children who'd been orphaned their parents had died of smallpox. So here we see Father Lacombe, and um, he, and in the background, you can see these kind of curious markings that maybe aren't familiar to too many people. But he, you know, the early traders and priests created these syllabics because Aboriginal people, for the most part, did not have a written language. Their tradition was oral. So all their history was passed on in an oral tradition. And for many of them, that is one of the big problems of residential schools, is that breaking that tradition of storytelling 
um, which normally would be passed on from elders to the next generation. You know, in in a traditional context, you know, everyone would be around the campfire telling these stories. I mean, um, and in their own language, you know, and by going to residential school, that was cut completely. First of all, the, the kids were thrown into an immersion English context and uh, they were told not to speak English. But if you go to the Goethe Institute in Germany today, they'll do the same thing to you. You will not be able to speak English in class, you'll have to speak German. So that's how immersion language works. It's, mm -hmm. but at the time, of course, this felt very cruel and was cruel to these, especially the very young children who, you know, it would be impossible to explain why they're suddenly in this mm -hmm. weird place where no one speaks the language. But nonetheless, the point of showing Father Lacombe is that there wouldn't have been uh, many of these Aboriginal languages if these people had not created some written form so that you could sound out the words and make reference to what it meant mm -hmm. um, because they created a written language. So yes, there are many great losses culturally, mm -hmm. but there are also some important, I guess you could call it a gain to have a written language so that things could be written down and and continue yeah. mm -hmm. okay so um so i just mentioned that reverend mcdougall's ancestor told me or descendant told me that he his uh um that reverend mcdougall had adopted 17 orphan blackfoot children whose parents had died of smallpox uh, so we have to remember that the smallpox epidemic of 1870 wiped out thousands of Aboriginal people who had no natural immunity to the virulent disease as it swept across North America. And yet today with modern sanitation, good food supply, excellent public health standards and smallpox vaccine, the disease has been declared to be eradicated. Mm -hmm. And uh, this will just give you a sense of what happened the uh, there's some historical writings on the mandan tribe in the states that were almost completely wiped out by smallpox um uh, you know very very sad mm -hmm. and there was no treatment then really either so uh likewise despite the fur over residential schools in the West, few people know that there were residential schools in Canada dating back to 1620 in pre-Confederation Canada. And this is discussed in Robert Carney's 1995 paper, Aboriginal Residential Schools Before Confederation, The Early Experience. And he notes that the Jesuits who ran those schools had adopted a more Amerindian approach to interpersonal relations than that of the European view of children that was prevalent at the time. So I'm just quoting a bit here from it. Some of the lessons learned by 17th century French missionaries concerning the efficacy of Aboriginal residential schools were apparently remembered by the Jesuits when they took up Aboriginal schooling again in 1840s. They followed certain pedagogical principles that could be described as bush or wilderness schools. These principles included tact, infinite patience and gentleness, 
in effect, a rejection of the European idea of schoolhood, of childhood, which always saw the man in the child and which regarded childhood as a preparation for a period of preparation for obedience and discipline, often of harsh character. So in those early schools, they basically would uh, take the kids out into the woods and they'd be doing some kind of woodcraft, bushcraft, uh, whether it be, you know, um, whittling or lighting fires or making things from, from reeds. And at the same time, they would be teaching them. And of course, this quite paralleled the way that Aboriginal people themselves taught their children. Mm -hmm. And in most Aboriginal cultures in North America, you know, there, there wasn't that harsh discipline that was meted out by sort of the stiff upper lip Anglo-Saxon society, you know, kind of like, you know, children should be seen and not heard and mm -hmm. you know, expecting children to, to know and do and perform, um, you know, at a certain level when they're kids, they, they don't get it yet. Um, so that method was quite successful in teaching them lots of things, but it wasn't very successful at integrating those children into society because they preferred being out in the wild, mm -hmm. <laughs> having fun. You know, it was way more fun than working in a factory, I feel like. Um, yeah. so anyway, so Robert Carney was a U of Alberta professor. He was a former Catholic residential school principal and regional administrator, but he was also a... He disputed what he thought was a rather simplistic view of residential schools in uh, this commentary about uh, the 1996 Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. So, um, you know, and there were reviews going on before that, but 1996, that's quite a long time ago. So Canadians have actually been uh, trying to address some of the wrongs done for a long, long time, and progress is slow. And I wouldn't say that it has been appropriate because many wrongs have not been righted. But of course, it's also very, very complex. Um, like there's over 600 separate, distinct Aboriginal tribes in Canada, First Nations people in Canada. So, mm -hmm. you know, and they're all scattered across different geography and have different languages, different needs. Um, so it, it's not an easy thing to address and can't kind of be done, you know, one magical solution. Mm -hmm. um, so I do have a side note here. Robert Carney uh, was the father of Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change. And in a 2014 article, Robert Carney was quoted as saying that northern residential schools tried to maintain Aboriginal wilderness life. But by contrast, his son, Mark Carney, appears to be selling First Nations the modern-day equivalent of glass beads, carbon mm -hmm. credits, and such like, which entail the lack of delivery of an invisible sub substance to no one. But I digress. <laughs> so none of the foregoing, right? Has, have you seen any of the foregoing in the mainstream media? No. I, I can't think of anything. Yeah, so none of the foregoing contents. Having said that, I haven't watched mainstream media in a little while either. <laughs> yeah, right. True. 
So none of the foregoing context appears in mainstream media stories about residential schools. No. And for non-Canadian readers, it should be noted that there are more than 600 distinct Aboriginal tribes in Canada. Mm -hmm. So the issues and impacts related to residential schools can vary greatly by tribe, geographic location, and period of time. Now, TB was reportedly endemic to Aboriginal people, at least on the plains, meaning that it, it was already part of their culture. Unlike smallpox, which came with Europeans, mm -hmm. TB was already here. Um, scrofula, which is a glandular swelling that is a precursor for TB, had been identified in Aboriginal people by Captain John Palliser when he surveyed the border in the 1860s between what would become Canada and the US bison are carriers of TB, but mm. early Plains Indians ate a rather hearty kind of keto diet of buffalo. They led open air nomadic lives, which likely meant that TB did not fully manifest itself until their diet drastically changed with the near total decimation of the buffalo by about 1870. And then the switch to a carbohydrate rich, if rather meager, European diet. So living in stationary camps on reserve in cramped and squalid conditions with large numbers of family members and poor diets meant that TB rapidly became an epidemic. Hmm. So, um, as noted above, tuberculosis was the greatest killer of all Canadians until the 1960s, and in BC, Zilm and Warbeneck report that in the late 1910s and early 1920s, TB was still of epidemic proportions in BC. In 1922, the death rate for Asians was 440 per 100,000, for the white population was 78 per 100,000, and the figure for First Nations people in BC may have been up to 20 times higher. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty shocking. Mm. And indeed, in the um, Truth and Reconciliation final report about residential schools, um, it states that from those cases where the cause of death was reported, it's clear that until the 1950s, the schools were the sites of ongoing tuberculosis crisis. Tuberculosis accounted for just less than 50% of recorded deaths. The report lists several other respiratory conditions that were prevalent causes of death, which combined account for a total of some 66.1% in the named register. So, um, so they counted TB, but back then, I guess they didn't know what cancer was either, did they? Or would they have, would they have just kind of lumped TB and cancer together, any any comment on that? Um, I think they did know what cancer was. I, I suspect that it wasn't that prevalent in children. Mm -hmm. It certainly would have been in older adults. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's quite common, you know, that as people age, cancer becomes a higher risk because just yeah. simply the cell duplication over time. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there were some uh, means of defining what people died from. Of course, you know, in those days, if you cut your finger, if you poked it, oh yeah, uh, you know, if you got a sliver in too yep. far, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get an abscess, and then yeah. if you didn't get it treated, like lanced and cleaned out with salt water and cabbage mm -hmm. poultice or something, um, and if that didn't work, well, too bad for you. Or a broken arm or leg, you know, or right. um, what do they call that? A green stick fracture where you actually break through the skin or something. Yeah. You know, any any kind of those relatively simple injuries that we can treat today, even appendicitis, right? That's um, right. You know, that would take you away whether you were young or old. But uh, And uh, also, uh, you know, children were not that well supervised then there just wasn't time even on the farm or even in the city you know people were busy working so lots of child deaths were simply you know kids getting into trouble falling in the river falling down the well um you know lots of things that today you would have to time to train your child to stay away from that danger yeah um, so clearly that wouldn't be under tb they would know with that. So, but TB, that's, that's being 61%. That's uh, a ridiculously high amount. Right. Uh, I, you know, and there is some criticism of the schools. Like why did they, why was it a, a hotbed for TV, TB? Well, part of it may have been that some of the children there were orphans. There was nowhere to send mm -hmm. a child to send them home. Also, you wouldn't want to send a child with TB home to a yeah. family. Yeah. and give them all TB. Also, the child may have come from the family that had TB and not exhibited any signs, but may have had latent TB um, mm -hmm. that manifested itself later. But yeah. um, we'll go into that yeah. some here. Yes? You had a question? No, all good. Okay. So, um, this is really a great documentary if you want to get a sense of the time, even though it's about the United States, I think things were pretty common here. To reorient myself to the public health situation of the early 1900s, I watched the excellent PBS documentary, The Forgotten Plague, which documents the ravages of tuberculosis on individuals and society. The documentary shows that initially, people did not know how TB was transmitted. Most people and doctors thought that TB was hereditary. Of course, it was quite common to, uh, for a family to be infected with it. So, of course, you would think that. And this myth continued long after medical experts knew that it was transmitted by a germ discovered in 1882 by Robert Koch. Ironically, once Koch's discovery became part of the mainstream medical assessment of people, the Forgotten Plague documentary explains that those with TB who had previously been accepted in society, once they were diagnosed, they were ostracized. Mm. You know, I, I think if you think back to the very beginnings of COVID, um, maybe you'll remember that there were some people who got sick, they got COVID, and then they recovered. Yeah. And they found themselves to be some kind of weird pariah in society. You know, people were afraid to be around them. Um, so you can understand that historically these kinds of separations uh, would have manifest themselves in society then as well, let alone racism, which yeah. certainly did exist and does exist. Um, so as noted in this paper by Moffat et al. from 2013, before the discovery of anti 
tuberculosis drugs, those suffering from TB were institutionalized in TB sanatoriums for a rest cure, which was the dominant means of TB treatment at the time. Once admitted to the sanatorium, patients were often required to stay for extended periods of time, months, or even years. Treatment included rest, relaxation, emphasis on proper nutrition, and exposure to fresh air and sunshine. Sanatoriums also performed an important infection control purpose in that they removed the infectious individual from healthy society. Hmm. And many of the people interviewed in the Forgotten Plague are former sanatoria patients, and most of their family members had died of TB before they were fortunate enough to get treatment. That was the situation at the turn of the century. And one of the speakers in the documentary reports that he was in a sanatorium for 12 years before being released as healthy. Wow. So the Truth and Reconciliation Residential School Report is very critical of the fact that children who were infected with TB were brought to residential schools, thus infecting others. But it's difficult to determine today whether those children may have been sufferers of latent TB, meaning like they're a carrier of it, but it hadn't manifested itself to a point where it could have been determined in those days. The conditions would not have been identified then as there were no external symptoms. The children may have been taken from a high-risk TB home situation only to have latent TB, develop and infect others at school as the stressful circumstances of isolation and poor diet may have led to the disease taking over the body. And children of about five and under are unable to mount an effective immune response to TB. So they're at a very high risk level when they're little kids. The Truth and Reconciliation Residential School Report also refers to an unnamed register of deaths. Unnamed seems very ominous and indicative of a lack of care. However, it could refer to a loss of continuity of identity if individuals were transferred in or out of the school for health reasons. Um, and we'll look at another piece here. So from this report by Moffitt, Within the context of TB, public health officials were granted the authority to coercively institutionalize the affected, forcibly removing infected individuals and placing them in sanatoriums. And due to the long treatment periods, contact with family, culture, and heritage was lost. And this is really heartbreaking to read this. I mean, because the person was being helped to get well, but what did they lose? One Aboriginal testimonial in Moffat reads, my brother went into the sanatorium and stayed there for seven years because he was allergic to the medication. It took seven years for the tuberculosis to go dormant. I never knew my brother. My older sister has no memory of him. My siblings never met their brother until he was 13. He was a total stranger. That's the emotional part, that we had a brother that we never knew. And I assume that would be similar to people just going to residential school as well. Mm -hmm. uh, although I understand that many of them went home, like for the summer. But Moffat also presents a testimony that children who recovered from TB, when they returned to the reserve and their families were often bullied as fatty or mocked for their pale skin, 
which is a symptom of the disease and due to lack of outdoor activity. So TB treatment primarily consisted of a highly regimented schedule, very substantial meals, along with resting outdoors in fresh air. Though the food was probably welcome in a time when many people suffered malnutrition, the forced bed rest imposed upon Aboriginal children by people who didn't speak any Aboriginal language and whose customs were completely foreign to Aboriginal life on the reservation must have been torture for the children who were incarcerated in sanatoriums. And um, another piece here by Jetty uh, explains that some young children who recovered from TB uh, were sent directly from the TB sanatorium to a residential school, adding to their trauma. And families may not have been informed about the well-being or whereabouts of children taken to sanatoria. Some children died and families may not have known where they were buried. And children who return home to their communities may not have understood the language, skills, or social norms anymore. So, you know, that's pretty sad and kind of hard to grasp in this day and age. So that's the piece that I just read. So this kind of experience of loss of family connection was not unique to Aboriginal people in Canada's residential schools. Uh, and so I found some examples from overseas from other countries uh, that confirm the kinds of trauma that were suffered by Aboriginal people in Canada, in residential schools and sanatoriums. <clears throat> and here's a big sign. We haven't seen any of those lately, have we? It's no. from the no. 1930s, from the Maritimes. See, it's recommending here that, you know, um, if you are run down or have a cough, get a medical examination. So uh, I'm just going to read here a piece. In Stigma and Silence, Oral Histories of Tuberculosis, Kelly, 2010. Here, we'll just go back to this for a moment. Uh, Kelly, 2010, recounts the isolation, loneliness, and disconnection of family um, of Irish tuberculosis sufferers who, as children, spend years in recovery in sanatoriums. In Raymond Hertz's uh, article, Tuberculosis Sanatorium Regimen in the 1940s, A Patient's Personal Diary, one gets a glimpse of the extreme regimentation of the sanatorium, even though it was in the UK, and how once diagnosed, that individual faced a rejection from her husband and was separated from her 15-month-old baby, all in an effort to save her life and prevent her family from being infected. But it's very sad, of course, when she comes back, like nobody even knows who she is. Her husband doesn't really want to be with her. Anyway, likewise, regarding those who died of TB while at the residential schools, as victims of a contagious disease, they were typically buried with haste. TB generated tremendous social stigma then as now. Historically, rather than uh, expose a family to being socially ostracized for having a TB victim in the family, individuals might be buried without a marker. Now, I can't say that this was the norm in residential schools, but it did happen in broader society. And in terms of markers, certainly people who were wealthy in those early days 
unless they were wealthy, a common grave marker was simply a wooden cross or a headboard. And as you noted, those things do disintegrate over time. And in the early days of Canada, death was common for all, including infants and children off reserve, as reported by Matthews um, in 1997. Uh, he writes, in 1891, of 117 deaths in Alberta, 65 were under 15 years of age. And he notes this sad story from the local paper. The newspaper report of a baby death in 1904 ends with this. Mr. and Mrs. Graham have been most unfortunate with their children, having lost four within the past three years. So pretty grim. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Matthew also, Matthews also explains that in order for a body to be shipped to relatives, in that time, there had to be a coroner's certificate. And likewise, if a body was to be shipped any distance, it had to be embalmed. Um, I didn't know that embalming actually developed out of the US Civil War because people wanted the body of their loved ones shipped to them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Matthew's work relates to Alberta. I don't know if these terms are in effect elsewhere in Canada, but in light of the fact that some residential schools were rather remote and operating budgets were very small, it's unlikely that either coroner or undertaking services would have been available or affordable for shipping bodies home. In the Truth and Reconciliation Report, Volume 4, it discussed in detail the issue of costs of shipping bodies versus local burial, and that victims of contagious disease required a sealed casket. So that's a significant expense in those times, and families would have had to pay that cost. And there are also laws under the Quarantine Act against shipping victims of contagious diseases anywhere so as not to introduce a disease vector elsewhere. Now, uh, by the 1950s, a third of the Inuit population of Canada were infected with TB. The Canadian government made concerted efforts to provide treatment for these people, even if the methods were rather heavy-handed and heartless by today's standards. And the quote is, when tuberculosis epidemic spread among northern Inuit communities in 1950 and 60, thousands were transported to southern hospitals and sanatoria for treatment. If the Canadian government had been intent on wiping out Aboriginal people, you know, causing a genocide, such efforts to heal people with TB would not have been done. Mm -hmm. Even today in Aboriginal communities, TB is a serious problem. This is partly because of the social stigma of TB, means that victims and their families may avoid um, treatment rather than face community rejection. Hmm. And you can imagine how in a small community, isolated community, how, how hard that would be, um, you know, to have your neighbors and friends suddenly treat you like a pariah. Yeah. I mean, Again, we have all encountered this in various ways during the last couple of years with COVID. So, you know, try to think of how these disease conditions affect societal behavior mm -hmm. and affect it then. Now, do you know how they treat TB? I'm just assuming it's like just an antibiotic, but maybe it's a whole regimen. 
um, I think today, first of all, there's a vaccine. And secondly, there are some kinds of uh, pharmaceutical treatments. I think there are some kind of antibiotic, but I'm not up on the details. Yeah. Uh, but just, yeah. It, it, I think it's a rather long-term course to get rid of it, but it is possible to get rid of. And uh, again, building up a person's health is really important. Mm -hmm. So it's also known that many Aboriginal children also suffered from violence and sexual abuse at residential schools. And this is painful. Parallel with Canadian Aboriginal testimony, Kelly, 2010, in interviews with Irish TB survivors, uh, found that many people had been unable to talk about their experiences with anyone. I mean, we see that with many survivors in Canada as well. Um, the Irish survivors also described their family relations as broken. In interviews with Susan Kelly, while finally talking about their experiences, some TB survivors were overcome by suppressed memories of sexual abuse. And she writes, in studies in America, polio survivors report having been sexually abused at three times the rate of the general population of people who were children in the 1950s. And Dr. Frick, a psychologist specializing in polio sufferers in the New York Times writes, if there was a pedophile in the family or on a hospital staff and a child was unable to run away, you can guess what might happen. And there were many children with tuberculosis who were also unable to run away. Wow. So combine such horrors with the sheer geographic isolation of most residential schools, the inherent isolation of immersion-style language learning, the distances that made family visits impossible. Then many more graves, some unmarked, came from suicides and self-harm. In early times, suicide victims were buried in unmarked graves as the person's last desperate act was seen as blasphemous. And likewise, we know from testimony and from school records that many lives were lost when able-bodied children tried to run away from schools and ended up dying in hostile terrain or drowning in deep water. Mm -hmm. So, As for mass graves, in, indeed, there will be a few mass graves found due to the Spanish flu epidemics. From the Truth and Reconciliation Report, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials, Volume 4, we read that several of the schools were overwhelmed by the influenza panic, mm -hmm. pandemic of 1918-19. to 19. All but two of the children and all of the staff were stricken with influenza in the Fort St. James. British Columbia School and surrounding community in 1918. 78 people, including students, died. Initially, Father Joseph Allard, the school principal, conducted funeral services at the Mission Cemetery. But as he wrote in his diary, the others were brought in two or three at a time, but I could not go to the graveyard with all of them. In fact, several bodies were piled up in an empty cabin because there was no grave ready a large common grave was dug for them. Wow. And um, in preparing this, I, I found uh, this bit, which is not in my original document, but 
um, in the northern Labrador community of Hebron, 86 of 100 Hebron residents died of Spanish flu. And though its effects were both devastating and far-reaching, the influenza spread through Labrador in a matter of weeks, killing more than 30% of the Inuit population and infecting many others. Those who did not die from the disease often experienced heart and respiratory troubles for the rest of their lives. Um, now, regarding the brutal treatment, it is astounding that corporal punishment, such as the strap, was only outlawed in Canadian public schools in 2004. It had been outlawed in the 1980s in the UK, where caning was the norm for those who violated school rules. And as I mentioned at the outset, my late father had attended a British boarding school in the 1930s. His hands were caned black and blue, his left hand tied behind his back, and he was made to stand in the corner and be mocked by his peers for the heinous crime of being left-handed. So the residential school and sanatoria experience was traumatic and life-changing for all participants, but it doesn't meet the definition of genocide. The schools intended to provide language, math, and reading skills to make participation in broader society possible. And the sanatoria intended to return people to a state of health. Perhaps some of this historical context will help former students and descendants make sense of what happened and why. That's not an excuse. It's simply historical context. Mm -hmm. References to studies of other populations like the Irish TB former students, or the US TB and polio victims is provided just to further support the testimony of Aboriginal people who suffered brutality and abuse at Canadian residential schools. Now, some people are calling for the exhumation of remains or other kinds of reclamation. I can sympathize with the deep sense of loss of those who do not know where their loved ones are buried. Um, my own child is buried in an unmarked grave far from me, as is my grandfather, who was a decorated World War I veteran and an aviation pioneer in Scotland and Canada. When my thoughts turn to them, uh, the sense of loss and emptiness is disorienting and incomprehensible at times. But that's how it was, and that's how it is for me. So I choose to press on. Mm -hmm. and honor their memory in other ways than looking back. But in this situation, um, I am deeply concerned that other major in Aboriginal issues in Canada, like sufficient good quality housing, clean drinking water on reserves, and treatment of existing and ongoing TB infections in some Aboriginal populations, the needs of the living are being upstaged by the media cacophony about the dead, in particular the, the media inferences of mass graves and genocidal intent. Mm. It would be nice if the important issues like clean water, proper housing, that would enhance the health and life of present-day people could get headline news. It's sad and annoying to me that the mainstream reporters seem reluctant to do any additional research on these stories to set the historical context. Mm -hmm. Their hyped coverage must surely torture the broken hearts of those people who are already suffering. And this clickbait news is also driving a rift 
between Canadians driving rage in those who do not know this history, leading to vandalization and burning of churches. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time I wrote this, there were 54 that had been burned down. And on the other hand, it's also creating resentment in people who do know this history or who know at least that the claim of genocide is unwarranted. So present-day Canadians who had no role in the residential schools are being smeared in the international press in a manner that is inconsistent with historical facts. This will not lead to reconciliation or practical solutions for the real needs of Aboriginal people in Canada, and it will destabilize what had been a growing and friendly participation participation and partnerships between many Aboriginal people and off-reserve society in Canada. So I hope that this presentation might help people have a um, slightly better understanding of the times. And, um, you know, if you uh, want to help me continue this research, you can do so. And if you want to send any questions along, please feel free. So that ends my presentation on uh, unmarked or mass graves. And thank you very much for letting me present it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for, for wow. Like, again, there are always two sides to every story. And, and I'm, actually, I'm, I'm almost shocked that the media wouldn't have at least even talked about some of the stuff that, that you brought up. Yeah, it's uh, it's insane. <laughs> so, so again, uh, digging a little deeper into the whole undrip thing, um, maybe maybe that's maybe that's a goal. Maybe that's a goal of the media is to not have uh, this side of the story out there, so that there is more resentment between um, or dividing dividing Canada even further, or dividing the world even further. Like I. I don't even know what to say about that. I think that's the real possibility. When yeah. you look at the tar sands campaign against yeah. Canada, um, if you look at corporate ethics, they have a fellow named uh, Kenny Bruno, mm -hmm. who runs their Aboriginal division. And uh, so he trains Aboriginal groups to be activists. Yeah. And uh, when Michael Marks spoke at the, um, I think it was the ninth annual um, International Funders for Indigenous Peoples Conference, which was out in Tofino in 2010. Uh, he openly stated that uh, Aboriginal groups and environmental groups in Canada would be acting together, although probably kind of on the QT, yeah. um, to block Keystone XL. Yeah. So, you know, they, that there, there are Aboriginal groups that are act actively being exploited by yeah. the foreign-funded tar sands campaign against the resource industry. Yeah. And, you know, we see that there are many Aboriginal groups, First Nations groups, Métis, uh, who are in favor of resource projects. In, in fact, the um, National Coalitions of Chiefs, mm -hmm. uh, Dale Swampy, I think, is uh, one of their lead executives. You know, their mandate is to develop energy resources to end poverty on reserve. That's yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and yet these foreign-funded obstructionists, um, economic saboteurs, you know, they, they are keeping Aboriginal people in poverty. Yeah. 
So even when we were talking, you know, a lot of the dates were in the 1800s when we were looking at you know, TB and smallpox. And so, again, that predates provinces. We're still talking about the federal government trying to help people back then. And, of course, now the whole idea of the APP is to say, wait a minute, you know what, we're getting a raw deal. We should be separating when when would that have gone south like when uh and i i don't mean for you to answer this because i don't think you you may know, know the answer but it seems back then yeah the federal government certainly did want to help certain people and then you know we end up getting uh, alberta in 1905 and uh actually i should know when um, manitoba came in but i mean everything after 1867 anyways and then looking at this now it's like um I don't think the federal government is helping anybody anymore. Well, you know, TB, for instance, was yeah. uh, very prevalent in Canada right up to the 1960s. Yeah. And I think the last residential school closed in the late 1980s, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps yeah. 1970s. Yeah. So, you know, some of this is very sort of present time history. With regard to the federal government, um, you know, I do recall that... Uh, Again, now I'm jumping back in history, but at one point the feds were supposed to send food for the Treaty 7 uh, Blackfoot Nation yeah. after they'd signed the treaty and there were almost no buffalo around. And um, the food was not arriving, so Colonel McLeod yeah, yeah. Uh, told his men to uh, to slaughter their cattle and distribute the meat I do remember that story. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, because he, he wasn't going to take it. Like, they these people were his friends. Yeah. They trusted him and he trusted them. Yeah. You know? uh, so um, it's hard to say, you know, in hindsight, things are, you know, as I would like to say, hindsight is always 50-50. It's not 20-20. <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's hard to say. Like, things had to be shipped out of Ontario down across through the United States because that's where the better shipping transportation lines yeah. were and then back up from Fort Benton into Alberta yeah. so you know it wasn't Federal Express in those days so uh, there could have been all kinds of reasons for the delay but um, but that kind of thing obviously uh, was a, a breach of trust and yeah. uh, McLeod tried to make it right yeah well this has been uh I'm rarely speechless, but this has been really difficult for me to digest. Because um, we're told one, one thing, or maybe one, we're not even told anything. Well, I mean, one thing that really sticks out to me was that there were some people who were really trying to do some good things, and they were trying to help other people. Mm -hmm. And it had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with position. They just simply wanted to help people. Um, you know, you mentioned that the church started doing the hospital thing because that's kind of what it means to be um, in the body of Christ is that you want to help other people. And it, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the amount of hate and division and distraction there is these days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, churches burning, as, as you mentioned in your presentation, um, just the most horrible thing said online about groups of people on both sides. And I, it, it makes me wonder like, what, what do we do and where do we go from here? Like this is a, there's a lot of truth you mentioned that 
I've never heard. And as a matter of fact, when I was in school and we learned about the cowboys and the Indians in the early times, it was all, oh, you know, we came over and made these treaties and everyone got along and it wasn't great, but, you know, we all did good. But the the reality was much different. I didn't learn about the smallpox outbreaks and tuberculosis until about 10 years ago in a museum in my hometown. So with all this truth out there that would most likely set people free of the hate and division we have right now, how in the world do we take this information and do something good with it? Well, I, again, I, I have to thank you guys for, you know, inviting me and allowing me to speak on the topic. I know it's quite contentious, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, when people hear the facts and understand more of the historical context, as you say, you kind of go, oh, well, you know, so things look a little bit different. It yeah. doesn't look like people were, you know, vindictively running around trying to hurt people. I mean, one of the things I know that's very um, uh painful for Aboriginal people is the creation of the reserves because the reserves were not part of the treaty. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, if you look at the the historical time, and I have two volumes of the RCMP uh, history of that time period. I have another one, Riders of the Plains. So I have quite a number of historical books that were written in that time or very shortly thereafter. Um, And the first concern was that the U.S. cavalry would just come right over the border and take over this part of Canada. You know, and of course, Sir John A. Macdonald's vision was sea to sea to sea. He -hmm. wanted to build that train. He wanted to um, tie B.C. to Alberta so that you could have an east-west port. You know, he envisioned a country somewhat like the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, that was strong and independent and uh, free. So. you know, the risk of having the U.S. cavalry come into Canada after, uh, you know, chasing a, a native band. And that's almost what happened after the Battle of Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, Sitting Bull made a run for it. He crossed the border into Canada and he flashed King George medals and said, we are, you know, children of the Queen. Yeah. Uh, you know, take us in, save us. And the Mounties did. I mean, the Mounties, you know, there were like, well, I don't know, 10, 100 perhaps, yeah. you know, they, they could maybe round up in Southern Alberta. And a lot of the young Braves at the time were really keen to, you know, go back and beat the crap out of the U.S. cavalry. And it was only Crowfoot who was able to say, hey, don't do it. <laughs> you know, uh, we're all going to die. So listen to to make the token and and don't do it. Yeah. So it, um, another thing, when when European settlers started coming in, especially or those from the states, you know, one American uh, settler said to the Mounties, you know, this guy is trying to steal my cattle. Uh, can I just shoot him? And they said, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> and no, you can't. It's not the United States. You <laughs> yeah. can't just shoot somebody who tries to steal your cattle. You know, you have to get hold of us and we'll take care of them. Yeah. So, um, so I think that the reservations were intended to keep the Aboriginal people from engaging in battles over the border, mm-hmm. and also to keep them from confrontation with incoming European or American settlers mm-hmm. uh, who may have had these, you know, cowboys and Indians ideas. Because you know, remember, if you read about the Courier de Bois in Canada, I mean, there's always been like a very 
strong trade relationship between European and, Ab and Aboriginal people in Canada mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. Uh, so, you know, we didn't have the same kind of, um, of acrimony that there was in the United States. And if you look at the Aboriginal people in the States, they were really, really crushed and wiped out. And today in Canada, the Aboriginal community are, are one of the fastest growing communities. Yeah. So there are many problems there, many problems that we could solve instead of sending $3 billion to some nation across the world. Let's make sure people have fresh water, housing. Yeah. Come That's on. You know, people well, well, you know, so there, there, our prime minister thinks that a lot of people in our own country that need things are just asking for more than they can give. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. So this, um, uh, I got one last little story I want to share that kind of gave me some new perspective on this conversation. I was speaking at an event at an event in, um, I want to say it was Stavely or Clarisome. I can't remember, yeah. but, um, an old kind of grizzled cowboy Indian came up and he shook my hand and said, you know, great speech, whatever. I am totally on board. And I had a little bit of a conversation with him about how, um, he thought the federal government had treated indigenous people in Canada. And I kind of started off with the attitude, like, you know, it's totally BS what they did to the, the, uh, the indigenous people here, you know, they can't, their culture and they weren't allowed to sell anything and they had to ask permission to sell something or buy something and blah, blah, blah. And stuck them on reserves and they had no property rights. And he said, well, hold on a second. He shared a little bit of information about him. Um, his family was in residential schools. He's, you know, he's seen all of this stuff his entire life, but he actually stuck up for the government of the day. And he said, he said to me, well, Chris, what do you think would have happened if the government hadn't have had these Indian agents um, that the, the natives had to come and talk to before they sold their cattle? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the incoming settlers would have totally taken advantage of them and they would have lost everything because they didn't have the, the they didn't share the same concept of property that the Europeans did. Right. They, they shared, they, you know, it was more communal and, he, and, and it kind of something clicked in my head and I thought, you know what, well, maybe there's some things that turned out really bad that weren't meant to be bad in the first place. And it was people just doing the best they can with the knowledge and the skills and the wisdom they had at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where you've said hindsight a few times here. Now we have the hindsight to see how some of these things have worked out and we have the capability and the potential to to fix them and prevent them from happening again. So, um, you know, these are these are all million dollar questions. Like, how do we do that? Um, how do we make it happen? And how do we get others involved in it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, you know, and things that might have worked in one place wouldn't have worked in another. Like, um, I mean, if you look at the uh, Asoyas band now, uh, Chief Louis, I think he was their chief for twenty one years. But in that time, he totally redeveloped the community. It used to be the poorest and smallest in Canada, or one of the poorest and smallest. Mm -hmm. And now it's one of the richest. And his philosophy was go to work or like get a job or go to school. That was it. If you were going to be there, you had to do something. Mm -hmm. um, but, but uh, you know, they managed to make a very beautiful like golf course and resort and all that in the middle of the desert if you like in the lower uh, Okanagan or like BC right yeah 
but if you're a community uh what is it grassy narrows you know one of the communities that are sort of up in the marshland of like northern manitoba that kind of area you know it's if you make a reserve there there's really not much you can do with it and you know sometimes people are condemned to live in a place where it's almost unlivable that's uh, and they, yeah. they may cling, cling to that land you know sometimes people say oh let's just get rid of reserves but a lot of the aboriginal people that i know first nations people say well no at least that we have that you know mm -hmm. that is the reminder to us that we are distinct people and that we come from a certain cultural heritage mm -hmm. uh, you know we know that there are problems there are lots of problems on many reserves but uh, you know it, it's something that defines us now so doesn't mean that it has to be that way forever but uh, again uh, you know some of the people ended up with really uh, the worst luck of the draw mm -hmm. in setting out the reserves and that and the, and unfortunately the government hasn't extended a hand to really help them mm -hmm. in, a, in a more productive way okay. well yeah. I think there's lots of work to be done for sure yeah but um you know i think uh i do have hope i mean i was a career and development officer for a while and uh, i had about 30 percent aboriginal clients at the time mm -hmm. most of them were young people and they were for the most part they were quite keen to you know get out there get an education um and and live a, a normal life in terms of being off reserve, traveling, doing whatever they wanted to do, having mm -hmm. their own money, being integrated. And a lot of them succeeded. You know, it's quite difficult because they do face um, a lot of racism. Yeah. But uh, the new generation of young people are, are quite strong spirited. And there are also a couple of programs that were in place when, when I was in career and development officer one of them was called the nate in motion trucks mm -hmm. and these were funded by the oil and gas companies and they found that one of the barriers to getting aboriginal people into the trades which is actually a really good option for a lot of people who haven't got say a university degree you know you can get into the trades by apprenticing and learning by doing more so than sitting down with a book uh, so they found that one of the big barriers was you know if you had to go to uh some technical college nate or state to learn to be a welder you know they had to leave the reserve they had to try and find housing in the city had to have enough money put aside um you had to face all the racism you didn't know the city you know it was just like really super overwhelming and then you had to get into some trade program where you know you were just a, an a novice right from the get-go yeah. so they decided well why don't we take education to the reserve so they outfitted a couple of semi-trailers uh, they put together a training program they had a life coach who would help people organize their life you know because if you've never worked before you know it's hard to figure out in the morning okay i better get up at six so i can make my sandwich get the kid to and you know daycare and uh, you know uh anyway Within 12 weeks, most of these people had passed their uh, pre-employment program, and most of them were hired on by industry like that. Mm -hmm. And 
I think there was an 83% success rate. So the students were very capable. Uh, they just needed that more friendly environment. In these uh, semi-trailers, they folded them out, and there were 12 uh, workstations that could be fit, outfitted with either carpentry, electrician, millwright, boilermaker, welder. Um, I mean, only one trade at a time, but you know, so you could teach uh, 12 people or, or uh, 24 if you could double up the classes. Mm -hmm. and uh, very good success rate so you know that that kind of innovative thinking i think would go a long way to help a lot of aboriginal youth get over some of these very mm -hmm. difficult barriers maybe maybe uh shifting the narrative to to focus on the future and what what people could be rather than you know things from the past that that may may that's hold them true. back and and just uh you know create create a, a a bad headspace i don't i don't i don't know how to put what i'm thinking into words that's the best i can do well i think you're right and i have to say both my parents went through world war ii in britain you know they were bombed out um they had a lot of their friends killed um uh and family and um you know it was a terrible time but they survived and when they came here they didn't look back we were very poor growing up but they just kept going, you know, and uh, I only learned about their war experiences when much, much later in life, they didn't want to talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. And even when they talked about it, they mostly only talked about the good friends that they'd made in those hard times. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, really were focused on the future and what they could build. So. I think no matter what ethnic group we belong to or what family or whatever, I think all of us, um, our ancestors at one time or another had some serious adversity to overcome. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Irish and Russian and both my, both sides. I mean, they Irish, I had no idea until about 10 years ago, but Irish people were slaves. Yes. They, were, they were slaves and they were sold cheaper than, um, um, Africans. Yeah. Yeah. It was, but you know that nobody has ever, the media has never told, my family that hey we you need to be you need to see what happened in the past as a roadblock i never have experienced that so i i think human beings were none of us are any different than than the others and maybe maybe if we spend more time um like i said focusing on the future you know we we might we might get to a better place unfortunately human nature oftentimes doesn't allow us to but just like those early settlers and and church folk that wanted to make a difference for their friends and neighbors at the time in the face of things like smallpox and tuberculosis and Spanish flu of which, you know, this was all may as well have been magic and, and witchcraft to them at that point. Um, they did it anyway, and they worked hard and they overcame and they did something and they built families and built futures and they built a country. Yeah. So I think that's, I think we can, we can continue that yeah. if we're willing to do the work. Agreed. Well, any other last thoughts now? We're almost at the top of the hour here, so. No, I think um, I think I've blabbed enough. <laughs> that was awesome. That was what a great history lesson. You know, yes, what, thank you, know, you. You have to know your history before you can. Uh, what's the saying? You have to know the history before you can forge your future. Or it's good to know so you don't repeat either. So yeah, yeah. Well, and some of those mistakes actually, you know, again. Just thinking of the past couple of years of COVID, 
and how that has so divided communities and and uh, often turned people against each other. You know, if we look back in history, those same kinds of things were happening in the times of those extreme yeah. epidemics. Um, and we didn't learn from it because we didn't really know about it. So, yeah. Um, and now it's it's splashed everywhere. Social media. <laughs> it's almost it's almost too much because now you're overwhelmed by that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to find a way to bridge all those painful gaps and go That's forward. Right. That's right. We just need to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all going to do what we can. You know, a lot of people are pretty exhausted and burnt out. But uh, I think if we can be a little bit forgiving of each other and a little bit, as you say, constructive and forward looking, then there's, there's hope and there's a future for all of us even though I think there are hard times ahead, really hard times. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on tonight to the Alberta Prosperity Projects webinar series. Uh, we do this every Wednesday, seven o'clock Mountain Standard Time. Uh, and of course you've been on before, but is there is there any contact information in case anybody wants to send you a story or maybe even give you a small donation so you can keep uh, going ahead and doing what you're doing? Um, you can uh, go to my website, michellesterling.com, okay. and uh, it's not quite finished, but it's fine. It's so, never finished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I'm busy doing this kind of stuff for other people, yeah, yeah. so I don't think about myself that much. Yeah, but. I know we're kind of, I think we're all in the same boat. We're all yeah. all too busy with our hands everywhere, and uh, but that that's great. I mean, all you need to do is have something up there, so thanks again for Thank for you. Resurgent for everything that you've done. Thank yes, you. thank you. I re I really uh, I appreciate your you know the the truths that you've shared and the and the history. It was uh, it was very enlightening. Great, my pleasure. Many thank thanks you. to Dr. Hugh Dempsey. All those years who inspired me. Awesome. That's great. Right on. Well, I think we can uh, log off now. And uh, thank you very much again for uh, everything. And um, join us here next uh, Wednesday when I have no idea who we'll be talking to, but they're always amazing guests. So please look for us next Wednesday as well. Thanks again. Good night, everybody. Good night.